The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Each business is unique and operated individually of others in the same industry. What they have in common is the potential path to success. Welcome to The Second Stage with your hosts, Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. In today's program, we'll address the obstacles that many businesses find on that path to success and discuss what entrepreneurs and their businesses are doing to stay ahead of the curve. Now, here is Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. Welcome, everybody, to The Second Stage. It's Brendan Anderson and Jeff Cadlick. Thanks for uh, tuning in to, to the show this week, folks. And uh, once again, we've got another another great show. And uh, again, you can find last week's episode and every week's episode on our banner page at voiceamerica.com, or you can go to iTunes, then podcasts, and look for our show, The Second Stage. Uh, like every week, we've got a guest this week that specializes in his area of expertise, and this week we are covering valuation best practices with our guest Rob Stutz of Western Reserve Valuation Services. It's, uh, again, somebody that we've known for some time uh, and a very impressive fellow, and I'll give his credentials uh, further along in this segment of our show. But as always, Brendan, I want to circle back to our last show with our guest Vikash Bhatia of Calca Consulting and uh, Cybersecurity 101. And I think you and I agreed that both of us were thoroughly um, scared and confused all at the same time. Not that not that Vikash confused us, but it's just it's gotten it's gotten complicated. It's a complex subject that's overwhelming that uh, you just you know every it seems like everything has gone to some sort of uh, electronic uh, reporting, paying, storing. Uh, I'm sure there's some other ings in there that, uh, that that we need to talk about, but it it really is. Uh, um, you know, and, and, and what's what's also uh, crazy, Jeff, is as you and I tour the country, uh, looking at um, at these small businesses, almost everybody is moving towards some sort of cloud-based system where you know their all their customer data is so- stored and all of their uh, you know kind of the real core intellectual property, and um, it was. Just out uh, visiting one this uh, in the central in the central part of the United States, and um, and they you know are part of the reason they're looking to raise capital was you know to tackle some of this issue and tackles you know the the security piece around the cloud and really staying up on top of some of these regulations that are getting um, unbelievably uh, burdensome, complex, and uh, and uh, it's, it's it's overwhelming. Use that word. Yeah, and one of the things that he pointed out and really hit home on was that these these hackers, if you will, focus on you know the weakest link, and they tend to be the smaller businesses, the suppliers to much larger businesses, like we saw in the instance with with Target, where they got into and preyed on the the weakest link, which just happened to be a small company where an employee was caught off guard, clicked on a link that they shouldn't have clicked on, and voila, the attacker is in the supplier, and then that's 
provide them easy access into Target, and then they lifted all of those uh, those those numbers from from Target. And a billion dollars later, or whatever, I, I got my uh, new Chase credit card the other day in the mail. As uh, you know, it was the <laughs> little package saying it was in compliments of the uh, of the uh, Target break in or Target uh, uh, things. So I, you know, Jeff, it, it really is. It's something that needs to be taken seriously, and it's something that really needs to be part of every small business's plan. And you know, it's just one more of those massive to dos that uh, just seems to uh, you know seems to kind of creep up on all business owners. So. Well, and the and the weak link is is really people have to have the guard up at all times, and and make sure that they are looking for the telltale signs of of some, uh, like for instance, as we talked about last week, is having your mouse hover over the link to actually see where it's sending you, because the link can say anything, but where it sends you might be an entirely different place. And uh, anyway. Uh, in, a, in, in a world of multitaskers, and I hate to sound like the, the negative guy. Oh, wait a minute, that's my role. Forget that. That is who I am. Um, the um, it's just it's unrealistic to assume if you have a hundred, fifty, twenty-five, you know, ten employees that people aren't going to make a mistake. I mean, you know, in the world of multitasking, when you know you have a phone call and another one coming in and a couple emails you got to do and something, you know, you're going, you know, you're probably going to click something that that. Uh, so I hate to sound so negative. Wait a minute. Yep. You know, no, on, that I, note, on that note, Jeff, I'm gonna I'm gonna crack the old uh, the old Red Bull just because I just <laughs> wanted to you know kind of get get revved up for the uh, for the next guest. Yeah, and that, you know, that's always been your problem, Brent, is not being revved up enough. So I'm um, just uh, hopefully that's a 16 ounce you got in your hand over there. Yeah. Uh, like every week, we are focusing in on some of our observations in private equity. And on last week's show, I talked about a wonderful article that was written by private advisors. Uh, on the the uh, whole idea of job creation and private equity because, gosh darn it, I get sick and tired of people picking on our industry because I think that we're pretty good, collectively a pretty good group of people. Sure, there's some people in there that I don't particularly agree with and I know that you don't agree with because they they focus on that you know, buy it, strip it, and flip it mentality that the article talks about. But to be honest with you, I feel like our industry is very well aligned uh, with our investors. Uh, and, and of course, I always take the time to pick on Wall Street. I wrote an article for Smart Business uh, Online Magazine, and it talks about uh, performance and investor alignment. You know, we only get paid when our investors get paid plus a preferred return. Uh, so we've got to perform if we want to get paid. Wall Street gets paid on transactions. Uh, also helping retirees. I don't think most people realize that uh, pension funds are allocating more and more money to private equity. So in this report, this Bain report talked about that the largest pension funds in the country in terms of assets, and these are these are pension funds with over five billion in assets, increased their allocation in 2013 uh, from 2012 from uh, 8.3 percent in 2012 to 9.7 percent in 2013. And in an industry that moves in glacial terms, that's that's light speed. Uh, fast. And that's also a lot of money too, Jeff. I mean, these are these are some large funds, and a shift like that is is uh, allocating a lot of money. So right. And so, of course, the same week that I write this article, Brendan, and the reason I'm bringing this up is in the Wall Street Journal this week. They were talking about uh, 
blowout haul for buyout tycoons. And it has Leon Black making on the order of uh, like $526 million. (laughs) So uh, as much good as we do, everyone is going to find fault in people making as much money as, as these guys are. Now, look. I think that's a ridiculous amount of money. Oh, yeah, here it says Leon Black made $546 million. Look, no so, one – So that, so that 121-odd number you mentioned, that that's like a starter. That was the first quarter of last year, Jeff. That was uh, – Right, right. Yeah. And, and, and so no one is going to feel sorry for Leon Black and, and because everybody believes everything they read in the, the Wall Street Journal um, – Look, if you've got a problem with that, if you know he's signed agreements and investors are paying them this because they feel like he's he's worth it, and if there's a problem, then investors aren't going to invest in their fund. You know what I mean? And that's how the market, in my mind, works. So I, I think it's an exorbitant amount of money, but his investors feel like they're getting value out of it, and they're going to pay him. They're going to pay him that amount. So what do I know? What do I know? Obviously, not a lot. Well, and, and you know, the, I think the, the the misnomer in funds, Jeff, and I think you probably have the the, the exact data, but I, you know, I always round up or down as it, as the case may be. But you know, I think that the bigger getting bigger and, and the smaller disappearing when it comes to investing in in these funds, and uh, um, you know, and it kind of it makes you and I mad because you know we feel that where the where, where the real impact is made is in the smaller end of the market where you can actually change a business, change the lives, and um, and add and add jobs, you know, lots and lots of good, good paying jobs. And that's where the, uh, you know, the, the, all the regulation and all the, um, requirements that are put on these funds today make it tougher and tougher for small funds like ours to exist. And it, you know, it really does come down to people like you and I making money on, on, on providing great returns as opposed to some of these guys can make lots and lots of money just because they manage lots of money. So. That's exactly right. And I do have some data that says that um, the average commitment by an investor in a private equity fund today is $70 million. And if you go with that rule of thumb of they don't want to be more than 10% to the fund's assets, the data says that that the average fund size is about 700 to $750 million today. That's pretty big, Jeff. That is pretty big. That is pretty big. I'm not going to compare them to us, but let's just say they're a lot bigger. Well, and, and I think that it's also important to realize that in, in a lot of our deals, we won't go out and use use bank debt, uh, where where these small companies and we know they need to grow, and we know they don't we don't want to put constraints on the balance sheet, where that that normally isn't true for those other companies. So if you have a seven hundred and some million dollar fund and you want to write uh, 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 million dollar, I guess those would be what uh, Jeff's hundred million dollar checks or you know uh, whatever. I mean they're probably borrowing. You know, multiples, yeah, multiples of that money. So you're talking about some pretty big companies. Yep, that's exactly right. Well, look, let's turn our attention to this week's topic, valuation best practices, and our guest Rob Stutz from Western Reserve Valuation Services. Now, I just want to explain to our guests why we um, had Rob on the show. Uh, Rob Stutz has received a number of awards and accolades for his dedication to the valuation industry as a frequent lecturer on numerous valuation topics and is the leading national instructor for the largest credentialing organization in the valuation field, the National Association of Certified Valuation Analysts. Mr. Stutz has trained over 1,000 NACVA members over the last 10 years and has received the Instructor of the Year Award as well as the coveted Circle of Light Award from the organization, and he currently serves as the chairman of that organization's executive advisory board. So 
Uh, Rob knows who he's talking about with regard to valuation certain practices uh, and a lot of other things. I've known him for a long time and uh, a very impressive fellow. And we're uh, happy to have him on the show. We will come back to him uh, at our next segment, but I always want to thank our sponsors, McGladry, who is a leading provider of assurance tax and consulting services focused on small and mid-sized businesses nationwide with more than 6,700 people in 75 U.S. cities. And with that, we're going to tune out of the first segment of this week's show. And when we come back, we'll be with our guest, Rob Stutz. Thanks for tuning in to the second stage. Stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iradioblog.com. This is Davis Love III, Ryder Cup captain and Team McGladry member. McGladry is about building relationships. That's the kind of team I want to be a part of, a team that builds deep understanding of each client's vision and unique way of doing business. The same attributes I look for and the partners I choose. It's this understanding that enables you and me to make confident decisions. When you trust the advice you're getting, you know your next move is the right move. This is the power of being understood. This is McGladry. Assurance Tax Consulting. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are tuned in to The Second Stage. To reach the hosts or their guests today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to thesecondstage at evolutioncp.com. Now, back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. Welcome back to the show, The Second Stage. Uh, this is Jeff Cadlick, and I'm here with my tag team partner, Brendan Anderson. And also on the line, we've got our guest this week, Rob Stutz, Managing Director of Western Reserve Valuation Services, uh, someone that we've known for some time, and as I had said in our first segment, uh, highly credentialed in this area and with the National Association of Certified Valuation Analysts. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, Rob, welcome. It's uh, Brendan. Hey, uh, Rob. Obviously, you know uh, the the term valuation is thrown around in the entrepreneurial community, and is thrown around in the kind of the professional legal and, and uh, deal community. Um, maybe start off with telling us maybe the primary reasons why people have valuations done uh, on a private business. Okay. Well, I would break that down into really two two primary areas. Um, some valuations are required by uh, different organizations and some aren't required. So, for example, in the event that a business owner is going to be doing gifting to another generation or a shareholder passes away owning shares of a private company, they would have to have a fair market value uh, valuation completed in accordance with the IRS Revenue Ruling 5960. That is a required valuation that has to be done for those tax purposes. Other required valuations would be things like companies that are owned by ESOFs, which are employee stock ownership plans. They have to be valued annually. When one company purchases another, there are requirements to allocate the purchase price and we would have to do valuation for intangible assets, et cetera, et cetera. Those types of valuations are required. Other types aren't required um, but are uh, 
you know, recommended by firms like ours or your sponsor, McGladry, uh, where we encourage companies to have an annual valuation done so that they can stay in touch with the value of what's oftentimes their biggest investment um, because so often they're getting their portfolio 401k statement monthly from an investment person, but no one's telling them what their assets really worth the business that they own. So we are encouraging private business owners to have a valuation done annually just so they can stay in touch with the value of what is often their biggest their biggest investment. So that's something you actually suggest for uh, for all businesses, or is there a certain level of business or size of business that you would suggest that that uh, they have an annual valuation done? Inevitably, you know, small business owners um, have partner issues. Uh, they have sometimes a lot of times marital issues, things like that, where it's very important for them to constantly be in touch with the value of their their assets. So we are trying to encourage, and most of our clients tend to be, um, you know, 500000 and EBITDA or more, um, but, you know, clients in that size range to have annual valuations done. And it's not necessarily a full valuation in terms of the report, the expenses part. Oftentimes, your accounting firm um, will have someone on staff who's been trained in the valuation uh, world that can run some calculations for you to help you understand the value of a company in your SIC code um, mm-hmm. based on based on industry multiples or things like that. Rob, is it and, and I'll move on. I swear, um, but is is it poss- is it possible for to, for um, initially for like a company to work with with a firm like yours or their accounting firm to come up with how evaluation would be looked at, and then have them do a lot of the work, but maybe have you know, but you know, in the subsequent years, maybe two, three, four, or maybe every you know, where they just where they would update the model or update the the valuation. Is that is that something recommended, or is there or would you suggest that you know, the, or I guess they could do the work and then show it to you and get you know just to kind of keep the cost for some of these smaller businesses down? Is that is that something you guys ever do or would recommend? Uh, you know, there's we're going to talk probably and we'll get to different valuation methodologies. Certainly, that would would work um, if they're just focused on what we call an income approach. So we would build them a discounted cash flow model. And all they mm-hmm. would have to do, all they'd have to do, is update it annually with the most recent financial performance. Where that becomes a little bit tricky is when you're looking at industry deal multiples. So mm-hmm. guys, guys like us have access to databases with where we can just search by SIC code and see, you know, different industries trade at different multiples. So you know, tech companies trade at higher multiples than would. Uh, you know, heavy manufacturing or something like that. So staying in touch with those industry multiples may be a little bit more difficult, and they and they do vary from year to year. Well, and, and I, it's funny, I, I never thought of that piece. And, and Jeff, I swear I'm going to move on. But uh, so maybe talk about how things just just real quickly how the multiples would bump around depending upon what's going on in the economy. And and actually, that's a very interesting point that that most business owners on the I call it the daily treadmill of, of running their business never stop and realize that the market is fluctuating. Also, multiples are like uh, are. I mean, they're often thrown around, but really they're just a reflection of anticipated growth. And when you look at 
know, a high tech company or a, a Tesla, for example, they trade at high multiples because people have high growth expectations for them. Whereas with, you know, heavy manufacturing that grows maybe just ahead of inflation, you know, their multiples tend to be lower. And these, you know, this, this expected growth and people's confidence in these fast-growing companies wavers from time to time in different industries and can really, really have impacts on, uh, on industry multiples. Not so much in the, in the manufacturing distribution sectors. They tend to be a little bit more um, stable multiple-wise. And, and just for the listeners, when we talk about multiples, we, we're talking about a multiple of earnings. And we, you, for the frequent term that's thrown around is multiple of EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And in, in some companies would trade at you know, three to four times, and some of the tech companies may trade for 10 or more uh, times that number. And so that's uh, – you know when we, when we talk about multiples, just in case somebody's confused. Hey, Rob, but you know what? Sorry. I've always been amazed you know, when somebody that's not in the industry starts talking to me about you – know, what's the multiple? And I said, you know what? It really depends on a lot of different factors, you know, the size of the company, the margins, capital intensity, stickiness of, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I said, if I was sitting across from another private equity person, we would probably be within a half a turn of each other on any one of these valuations, uh, just from giving us basic statistics. That's a great lead into the next question about um, what specific factors affect the value of a business. You know, I mean, industry is a big one, and don't get me wrong, and don't under you know underestimate that. I mean, we we look at companies right now. The solar industry is pretty hot, so the solar industry multiples are are high, um, and other industries, um, you know, aren't you know financials right now aren't aren't quite as good. So the industry can have a big a big impact. But when you're looking at smaller companies. The industry doesn't concern me as a valuation expert or investor as much as um, probably the single most glaring thing that we look for is uh, customer concentration. I mean, I have seen beautiful companies, one in particular uh, right on 71 that, you know, was a great company. And when you looked at it on paper, it had, uh, you know, three or four million in, in EBITDA recurring every year. But when you dove into it, 92% of their revenue came from one client. And a company like that is worth, in my estimation, you know, one to one and a half times EBITDA just because there's so much risk associated with one customer. And I think a lot of people uh, underestimate customer concentration, just think those clients are going to stay there forever. And from an investor standpoint or evaluation person, that is first and foremost what we look at. Other things would be um, management depth. You know, if if I have a client right now where the the man who's running the business is uh, north of 65 years old and is in fairly bad health, and he's critical to the business, it's a beautiful business. But without him, um, it's not such a beautiful business, or it's a lot riskier business. So we look at you know succession management that might be in place. And then uh, competition would be a third one. I mean, some industries have higher barriers to entry than others. Um, some companies are very easy to duplicate. So I would say customer concentration, uh, management depth, and competition. 
The uh, the concentration issue is huge, especially in small businesses. And just uh, you know, as when Jeff and I walk around, this is just kind of for the for the community. When we when we're when we're traveling the country looking at uh, these businesses, the the business owner sees a very committed customer that's been there forever. That's been you know that that they that that, that quote unquote loves the company. But obviously, the fear from for some for a outside buyer is that that customer really just likes the person. They like the commitment. They like the fact that they can contact them at any time and get stuff done and so it, it gets you know that's it just gets so for the entrepreneurs that are out there that you know that think that they've got a 55 percent customer that'll you know that'll that'll be loyal to the next buyer it's a it's a pretty tough uh, pill to swallow for people like us to 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 uh to buy off on so yeah we would say we would say that uh you know in order to consider a company to have a diverse customer base no one customer should make up more than probably Eight to ten percent of revenue per small company, and that's a and that's that's very hard for some for a lot of companies because they you know they tend to the owner gets in with one company and really grows so that's a um, maybe um, spend a little time. Um, well, one observation that we see all the time in the consumer product side, you know, somebody has gone from, you know, zero to eight million in sales and seven of it's with Walmart, <laughs> you know, and, and to your point, Rob, it's that that's not a business that we're going to be interested in buying almost under any circumstances. It just, it really makes that company difficult. We were talking about multiples earlier for an outside investor or evaluation person like me to value that company at a full multiple when so much of their revenue and therefore profitability is derived from one customer. It's, it's just too risky. Yeah, and I, I would argue also that you know the automotive industry has had a history of bashing and trashing their suppliers, and that's why that industry has always struggled getting you know, outside private capital in there because you could never rely on any of the big three, uh, well, what do they call those, the Detroit three now automakers yeah. standing by the agreements that they had put into place. And so they kind of got what they deserved uh, ultimately because they couldn't get their suppliers um, upgraded to be uh, providing top quality product. So. Well, and, and, and Jeff, one would argue, I mean, at least from our experience, you know, you, we've looked at lots and lots of small businesses. The same thing exists with some of the large retailers. I mean, they, they have so much power that, uh, you know, a sale's not a sale. So it's, uh, you know, and, and, if, and if you're selling, you know, uh, 60%, 70% of your revenue to a company, it's, it's pretty brutal. So um, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. And I, and I think that, you know, it's just we keep driving home, and and, and Jeff and you know, and, and uh, Rob and I see it every day. It's just this, the uh, you know, with the business owners that are on that daily treadmill. It's it's uh, you know, they see this wonderful you know wonderful company, and and, and they just really need to stop, get off the treadmill, and look at um, at some of these other factors. Um, maybe we talk about you know, at least kind of start talking about maybe the primary evaluation methods. Um, you know, that the, the, the professionals like Rob use and looking at a company we have, do you, Jeff, you want to maybe go to a break quickly and then come back and talk about that? Yeah, let's do that. Cause I do think it's an important topic. And, um, so why don't we do that? We're going to take a quick break here on the second stage. And when we come back, we'll continue our discussion with our guest, Rob Stutz of, uh, Western reserve valuation services uh, thanks for tuning into the second stage. Find 
out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. This is Davis Love III, Ryder Cup captain and Team McGladry member. McGladry is about building relationships. That's the kind of team I want to be a part of. A team that builds deep understanding of each client's vision and unique way of doing business. The same attributes I look for and the partners I choose. It's this understanding that enables you and me to make confident decisions. When you trust the advice you're getting, you know your next move is the right move. This is the power of being understood. This is McGladry. Assurance Tax Consulting. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You are tuned in to The Second Stage. To reach the hosts or their guests today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to thesecondstage at evolutioncp.com. Now, back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. Welcome back to the show, The Second Stage. This is our show, but it is a forum, so we're looking for input from you so that we can benefit from everyone's experience. Uh, please contribute via email at thesecondstage@evolutioncp.com or continue the discussion after the show at evolutioncp.com on our blog page. We're back with our guest, Rob Stutz of Western Reserve Valuation Services, and you can find him at westrest.com. Valuation.com. That's www.wesresvaluation.com. Uh, Rob, when we left you at the last segment, we were just getting into this whole topic of the primary valuation methods employed by valuation professionals. And we didn't want to cut you off uh, in the middle of a very important topics. So please uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, there's three primary methods that we teach and, and utilize. The first is uh, what we call an asset approach, where we basically look at the liquidation value of a company. And going back in, in you know years, manufacturing companies had healthy balance sheets where they were able to you know, show value between their equipment and their receivables and inventory and subtract their liabilities and come up with some value. Today, so many companies are service-based that, uh, you know, their balance sheet really doesn't hold a lot of, of value. So the second method that we evaluate and analysts look at is what we call an income approach. And in the income approach, there's, there's really two primary methods. One is a capitalization of earnings, and that's when we look at some benefit stream like EBITDA, like you suggested earlier, and we divide it by a discount rate, uh, less long-term growth, and that really is the enterprise value calculation. So we would look at the expected return from this particular company based on its risks, like we talked about earlier, customer concentration, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, clearly, it's going to be riskier than an S&P 500 investment, so call it a 25% discount rate, and we would subtract long-term growth, and we'd have a cap rate, and that's how we would calculate the value in the income approach. The second and more widely used is what's called a discounted cash flow analysis, 
here we're going to do a five-year forecast with the company to understand where they're headed. We're going to calculate their cash flow, uh, taking into account depreciation, amortization, capex, and necessary uh, working capital adjustments to support our projections. And we're going to discount these future cash flows back to the present based on the company's specific discount rate. Um, part of that is a terminal value, which is a highly debated uh, topic in the valuation world that we could do a show on just on that. Um, but common theory today um, uses some type of exit multiple to calculate uh, terminal value because the holding period for private companies is a lot shorter today than it used to be. So we see a EBITDA multiple as a calculation of terminal value. So those are the income approach methods. And then the third is the market approach. And valuation analysts have access to a lot of market data. Um, there's two types of market data. These are actual transactions that take place of companies um, that we can sort based on SIC code, which is their industry classification. And we have access to four primary databases where they list uh, deals that took place of private companies, so brokers and investment bankers, turnover, multiples, and different SIC code uh, classifications to these databases. They gather the data, and we buy and subscribe to these databases and can, can pull from these databases multiples. Um, the second source is then public company information, which is also a highly debated topic because so many private companies are so much smaller um, and less uh, diversified than public companies, so it's hard to draw comparisons to a uh, local, uh, you know, tech company compared to Facebook or something like that. So it's hotly debated. But looking at the multiples of publicly traded companies in the same SIC code and comparing them to benefit streams in our private company we're trying to value. So, so Rob, when you look at the asset approach, the income approach, and the market approach, is there one that generally comes out higher versus the others, or, or is there is it bounce around like a manufacturer will come out higher in the asset approach versus the income approach, that sort of thing? Inevitably, almost always today, the asset approach will be the lowest, um, except for companies that are losing money. Um, the income approach is by far the most popular method, and tends, you know, it's probably not. Uh, surprising that that also tends to be the middle value estimate, if you will, uh, whereas the market approach, especially the public company approach, tends to lead to higher values. Um, but all three methods are important and must be considered. Uh, for example, earlier when I talked about that required valuation for tax purposes with Revenue Ruling 5960, they require that you consider all three methods. Uh, so we have to employ all three methods in those valuation projects. Hey, hey, Rob, I have a question about when, it, when you when you look at like the discounted cash flow or so forth, and you know, so often you know they you know small business owners will kind of put some kind of hyper growth or some assumed growth rate. I mean, is that is you know from from our perspective, or is that a fair way to look at stuff? I mean, if they think that the the company is going to grow, can that? I mean, is that part of a discounted cash flow? I mean, it would seem to me that that's work in the future that, you know, that you're paying for today. No, that's a great question. Um, I get it. I get it constantly. But let me 
let me rewind just a minute just to make sure you understand uh, the discounted cash flow analysis, the income approach, has that terminal value component at the end where earlier I said it is a multiple um, assuming an exit. The other way in which people do that is to capitalize the expected um, benefit stream into infinity. Okay. And that's in year five of a discounting cash flow. And what they oftentimes do is they'll put a growth rate in year five that exceeds inflation. And it drives me crazy. Some valuation people are okay with that. But in my mind, you know, if you're saying that a company is going to exceed inflationary growth into infinity, uh, that would indicate that eventually this company would be bigger than the U.S. economy. So I never really advocate for that type of long-term growth. But you will see firms put 5 to 7% uh, as a long-term growth rate in, in that terminal value calculation. And why, it has why a is, substantial impact on value. Yeah, yeah and, and, and uh, why is it and, – and, uh, and this isn't universal, but I would say more times than not, you have two, two, two partners that, you know, that, that want to go separate ways or a husband and wife that decide they you know, no longer want to be together and they need a valuation. Why is it that, that valuations tend to, tend to be relatively different? You know, it's kind of the, the, the difference between the valuations can be so different between two you know, kind of certified professional appraisers? Uh, there's a political correct way to answer that. And it's not <laughs> but, let's I mean, do, let's do know, both. Let's do both. I'm just you know, the, the, the truth is this is a tough business, right? But more, more, uh, more often than not, a company, like you said early on so well, is worth, you know, three to five times EBITDA, period. Um, Occasionally, you will find valuation practitioners that may be more advocate for their client uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to an advocate for value. And, you know, when you deal with larger valuation shops who have, or accounting firms that have good, strong valuation practices, you tend to get away from that advocate role. But you definitely will see gaps when litigation is involved because. So many of these numbers, you know, we were talking about long-term growth, can be tweaked to 2%, and they can have a 25% value increase, um, mm-hmm. and you may never notice it. So it's important that you work with reputable firms, accounting firms, valuation firms, investment banks, to get, you know, defendable values. That's good. Hey, um, Rob, what, what type of – maybe we mentioned uh, you know, professional firms like yours that, folk, that specialize you know, you're in this sort of thing and accounting firms. You know, what, what other types of firms provide kind of valuation work or that small business owners can go to? Yeah, I mean you have dedicated valuation firms out there in most towns now. There's the organization that I am chairman of has 7,000-plus members in the United States. Um, so you'll have a lot of small valuation firms. You have uh, kind of valuation practices built into investment banks like Western Reserve. And then really accounting firms have done, I mean, my first 10 years of my career were with a large accounting firm, and I loved it. You know, they're great. They're a great, they're a great place uh, to do valuation work because they're detail-oriented and they have great name recognition. The only thing you have to be careful about accounting firms is, you know, they're if they're doing your audit or your review, 
annually. They're probably conflicted out of your valuation practice. They're not independent, if you will, to be doing your valuation work. So you just have to be careful about that. Okay. What, what type of credentials would you typically look to or look for when you were talking to a um, Somebody that was looking to do evaluation, and, and as importantly, that you would require if uh, if somebody you know if a partner or uh, or somebody was doing evaluation, um, you know, against something you were working on. So, what, what would you be yeah. looking for? Somewhere along the line, the valuation business took to the letters of the alphabet, and so many valuation practitioners now have a bunch of letters after their name that are different mm-hmm. credentials that have different types of uh, training required in order to get them. Um, they all have their own strengths and weaknesses, but you know, the primary three that I personally look for uh, when hiring people um, would be one that's called the ASA, which is given by the American Society of Appraisers. Um, this is a credential that is only awarded to people who have 10,000 hours of full-time valuation experience that can be demonstrated. Wow. And so there's not very many of those. Um, you know, NACS, by the organization I'm in, is their credential is a CVA, and it's a very intense training program that requires review by your peers of two of your valuation reports um, and is a very, the strength of NACPA is in their, their membership is so diverse and national that you can get guidance from other members anytime, you know, and that's very valuable. And then the third one would be the CSA credential, which is popular in the finance world and is, you know, arguably one of the hardest finance tests that you can possibly take. Um, we love to find people with CFA credential too. So those would be the three credentials that we focus on. That's great. Well, I was just re-looking at your bio and you have the ASA credential. What was that? Uh, um, who's our favorite author? It talks about 10,000 hours. You're an expert. Tipping point. It's uh, not tipping point, but uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. So, um, so that, that I could see why that would be a very difficult uh, credential to receive. Out, outliers. We didn't outliers. Have, we didn't outliers. even have to go to Barbara this time. Normally, she needs to. Yeah. 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 That's right. That's right. Well, uh, Rob, uh, you've made a, a, a pretty complicated uh, process into something that's digestible for our listeners, which is what we always try to do, and we appreciate having you on our show, Rob Stutz. Managing Director of Western Reserve Valuation Services. You can find him at www. That's four W's. There's three W's though. At westresvaluation.com. W-E-S-R-E-S valuation.com. Rob, appreciate you being on the show, and uh, we look forward to the next time we can work together. All right. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, We're going to take a pause uh, again for a short break here in the second stage, and we'll be back with our concluding thoughts about today's topic. Thanks for tuning in to the second stage. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. This is Davis Love III, Ryder Cup captain and Team McGladry member. McGladry is about building relationships. That's the kind of team I want to be a part of. 
a team that builds deep understanding of each client's vision and unique way of doing business. The same attributes I look for and the partners I choose. It's this understanding that enables you and me to make confident decisions. When you trust the advice you're getting, you know your next move is the right move. This is the power of being understood. This is McGladry. Assurance. Tax. Consulting. Save on your prescriptions with the RX Savings Plus drug discount card offered by Voice America. It is not insurance and discounts are only available from participating pharmacies, but 9 out of 10 pharmacies participate nationwide. Start saving today. Print your free card online at voiceamerica.rxsavingsplus.com or text the word talk radio to 96362. You are tuned in to The Second Stage. To reach the hosts or their guests today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to thesecondstage at evolutioncp.com. Now, back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. Welcome back to the second stage. This is Jeff Cadlick, and I'm here with my partner, Brendan Anderson. And we just concluded our conversation with Rob Stutz of Western Reserve Valuation Services. Um, and you know what? I love having guests on that can take a very broad topic like valuation best practices and boil it down into very concrete, sequential thoughts on how to look at the topic. And you know this this uh, topic is so near and dear to our heart because it, it really is uh, in talking to entrepreneurs it, it is a big gating issue and uh, uh, you know one of my favorite statements is uh, you know uh, taking the technically correct and the emotionally acceptable and trying to combine them almost never happens and so uh, you know the value that 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 the outside world sees in a small business rarely. Um, overlaps with with what the entrepreneur sees, especially in small businesses, because the entrepreneur sees this big, wide open world and how they're going to tackle the world. But 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 uh, there there just needs to be so much more that goes into it before they can actually be in a position to have the foundation to do that. And not to always plug evolution, but you know that's what we focus on is trying to provide that 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 foundation, the capital to do that, the expertise, the systems, and the evolutionary process to do that. And um, and so hopefully we can bridge that gap to, uh, to to let the entrepreneur reach that 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 uh, that kind of you know behag or that big goal in the world that they see. And it's hard. It's hard. To, it's a very hard topic. And uh, you know, but to your point though, Brennan, what you just said, there is a difference between somebody that is going to buy you out one hundred percent, and then somebody that's going to provide growth capital. The the valuation on buying you out one hundred percent is going to be higher because you're buying them out of any possibility of a future benefit could be in, unless the person is the business you know, but but maybe you talk maybe go into a little bit more about what you mean by that cuz i think that's a very good point well you know we do growth equity right and so uh, there's other people that do 100% buyouts and and the what we're selling the entrepreneur on is that second bite at the apple and they're making this mental uh, and it, it's even a bit of a math problem for them of taking on a partner today at today's valuation can i move faster and farther with them as a partner than if I continue to trudge along on or plod along on my own. And as you like to always talk about the treadmill problem of just running really hard and not getting where you want to go. Whereas, you know, the buyout side, you're done. You're going to the beach 
And for a lot of the entrepreneurs we talk to, they're in the middle of their career. And one of the challenges they have is, is what are they going to do with the rest of their time? So, well, anyway. and, and, and what percentage of the time, Jeff, do we have an entrepreneur come to us and say, I've, you know, I've built this business, I'm hustling, uh, uh, and I'm taking out $300,000 a year, but you can easily replace me for a hundred grand. And so, you know, I, although my business only is making 500,000 or is making 500,000, you, you should add back the difference. And of course, you and I always look at them and say, well, if you really can replace yourself for a hundred grand, you should go do that. And the fact of the matter is nobody can replace the entrepreneur's focus and commitment and so forth for for the, the number that's a fraction of what they've been taken out. And quite frankly, what we find uh, is that is that it often takes more than um, – than what the entrepreneur's been paying because the entrepreneur has the upside of the value of the business increase. The entrepreneur has the upside of the earnings that are being generated. And, and I, and I can tell, and I can tell you that is, is if there's people driving or driving along, listening to this, there's their entrepreneurs are shaking their heads, but I just, uh, you know, we, we, it's true. And, uh, um, you know, it's, it's very hard to replace the spirit of an entrepreneur, um, without, a process like that we ask people to follow. So. Sure, sure. No, you know, I'll go back to what Rob Stutz said uh, is I think one of the most important things here is the credentials and the experience of the valuation professional. And here's why I've, you know, been involved with valuations in the past, as have you, Brendan, and there is so much latitude here where you can just come up with silly numbers that don't make any sense whatsoever. So that whole topic around the terminal value, uh, the whole topic around, you know, the discount rate, you know, the cap rate. I mean, you can be off by 1% and it's going to throw a wide dispersion of values out. And you can obviously be an advocate for value, as he pointed out. You can be an advocate for your client. And the best ones are going to be advocate for for value. And um, I just think that so much of what he does and to a certain extent what we do comes down to experience and knowing the market. And um, yeah, as I said before, if you if you gave us 10, 10 companies and gave us the same statistics, you and I are going to come out at about the same valuation. You know, within yeah. a half a turn. Uh, and private equity people can do that because they do this for a living. Um, and as as can people like Rob, uh, but he's using obviously a lot different methods than than we do um, when because he's looking at a very much broader, diverse groups of companies where we're looking to invest in a particular few. So, but not to beat this up, but you know, where where Rob, you and I would come within a very small uh, variance when when we when we put a value on a business. Uh, how often would the entrepreneur agree with that? Not often. Not often. Not often. Yeah. And and I think that's the key factor here. And I think the entrepreneur owes them owes it to themselves to get out and get educated on why that is and what that effectively does, Jeff. And I know you know this, but I'll, I'm gonna talk to you anyway since we're looking at each other. Is it, it 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 really does point the entrepreneur in in a direction where if they can solve those issues, it it really does increase the value of the firm. It makes their life easier because it effectively does the things that that an outside source is looking for. And um, it, so it, 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 it increases the value. It frees up the entrepreneur. It, it frees up resources. It frees up um, all the things that really will make the entrepreneur's life easier. 
Well, and Rob gave you three hints right there. He said customer concentration, so you got to solve that problem. Management depth, you got to solve that problem. And he said competition, but what he really meant was barriers to entry. You know, yeah. make your business more difficult to replicate, and that will increase the values. So those are three things that you need to do to solve in advance before you decide to sell your business, so on and so forth. And I think those are great, great um uh, hints. So, Brendan, we're kind of in that last minute or so. Uh oh. And uh, you, you, you've kind of getting, you know, legendary rap status yeah. within it's, I'm the hurting office today, here. Man. I'm hurting today. I, <laughs> I'm screwing around with something like factors and tractors. You know, I mean, like the factors evaluation and the, you know, and the, you know, creates tractors something. I, I'm, I'm striking out. Let's. Look, uh, to be honest, with you, I just like putting you on the spot. That's yeah, all no, I good. do. I, for. You've surprised I, me so far. Yeah, I literally, um, I'm striking out. I've got know your value, uh, which is, which you know, kind of goes back to what we've been talking about. And I, and I just, um, it, it really does point you in the point a business owner in the direction that will, that will hopefully change their lives. So. Unleash well, the unlimited possibilities. That's Jeff. right. Passion for possibilities. That's what you need to say. Hopefully, everybody enjoyed today's show. Join us again next Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific, and we will dive into our next topic. I'm not sure exactly what that's going to be, but you continue this week's conversation on our website at evolutioncp.com and email us at the second stage at evolutioncp.com. Thanks for tuning into the second stage. Passion for possibility, folks. Thank you for tuning in this week to The Second Stage. Please join Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson again next Monday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have a successful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 